You were in Singapore recently. Now, I noticed that you had a Singapore sling. What makes it a sling versus just like whatever else? I actually have no idea. It was, I believe, rum and a bunch of like pineapple and stuff. Um, so it was kind of tropical, I guess, which Singapore being near that thing that goes around the middle of the Earth, the equator, <laughs> I guess that makes it uh, tropical there. So uh, it was quite quite refreshing on a hot, humid day. And then, and then, so what's what's your assessment of the uh, what's your assessment of the food situation over there? Uh, so the the street food, like the hawker centers, definitely up there. Uh, there's there's pretty amazing uh, set of gardens right near the uh, the Harbour Sands. That massive, crazy hotel with the three towers and the uh, thing across the top. Uh, there's these beautiful gardens right near there, and towards the back of it, they have like a a satay place, which is like a dozen different little satay uh, hawkers all trying to sell you their satays, which mostly look the same. Uh, and so going there and just eat, eating like, like 20 bucks of satays, which is <laughs> a ridiculous number of satays, is uh, a lot of fun. Now, now, what is what is what is a is is saute like like the way you would saute onions, or is this something different? Oh, it's uh, saute is in S A T A Y, which is like a uh, meat on a stick with uh, you know a bunch of seasoning and stuff on it. Oh, and they would right. Cook that cook that over charcoal. Mm, man, that does sound good. What what kind of sauce do you put on that? Uh, that is a good question. It was kind of a spicy, maybe peanutty. Mm-hmm. Something inside mm-hmm. of my brain wants to tell me it was peanutty um, sauce that you kind of just dipped into or poured over the top. Now, ostensibly, as you know, we invited you here to talk about Kubernetes, but I'm pretty sure we're going to go the whole show talking about Singapore food. So we can <laughs> we can scrap the show notes that, that's, here. That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, joking I aside. He, I think he had us at meat on, meat on a stick. I think Ooh, that was what really triggered Meat on a stick. Like, that's right. It's not just for Germans anymore. It's it's a global phenomena. <laughs> so why, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Paul Tchaikovsky, and I'm a advocate at Pivotal. Uh, so I work alongside you, Michael, uh, under our benevolent dictator, uh, Andrew Schaefer. Mm-hmm. I think I think most recently uh, we were we were trying to do some research to advocate uh, conveyor belt sushi, which I can advocate not only to developers but others as well. It's 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 a good good uh, good thing to check into. Uh, let's go over a few news items. Feel free to, uh, you know, when you're not thinking about meat on a stick or peanutty sauce, t- you know, jump in if you want to, uh, Paul. But first of all, uh, it was like sure. it was like earnings last week, as I recall, and I think there's a few more trickling out. Like I saw that New Relic has turned a n- non-gap, as it were, uh, profit, which is fun, or as people confusingly call it, operating revenue. Those accountants need to get together and be like. Revenue is always revenue, and then profit is always profit, no matter what weird word we put in front of it. But whatever, I should worry about other things. But uh, it, it looks like uh, Amazon and, and uh, Google and Microsoft, all, all these people are doing pretty well in their, their cloud division. Yeah, good summary. Everyone's making lots of money, hand over fist. Amazon, uh, and they keep hiring like crazy. I think they added another 25,000 people. This is Amazon as a whole, not AWS. But I think they're up to 560-something thousand people, one of the largest private companies in the world at this point, or non-government companies, I should say. So they're growing, making more money. AWS seems to be driving a lot of that. Uh, Google, I think, said they crossed a billion dollars for quarterly revenue, something like that, 
for cloud, but they also do the kind of weird, everything's lumped in with cloud number. Yeah. So it's hard to tell between, you know, Google Docs and, and cloud stuff. And then, you know, Microsoft Azure had like 98% growth. So they're all doing great. And then Alibaba just came out with theirs. I think they were at like $500 million, either a quarter and like that. They're, a lot of people seem to think they're the, the leading terms of the mega clouds and, and it'll be fun to watch that. Yeah, you know, that would be an interesting metric to start watching. Uh, in addition, you know, one of the, the proxies for cloud that people like to watch is uh, capital expenditures, which probably mostly makes sense for those three. And, and until as long as Amazon breaks out Whole Foods separately and they don't open more retail stores, then, you know, what else are they spending money on than, than computers and, and whatever those uh, plant pods are, I guess. But those probably are pretty cheap compared to uh, a cloud. Uh, but uh, looking at hiring people is, is interesting as well, which, I mean, I guess you would want to look at, you know, sort of weight it by the salary that they get to see what, what the uh, – what the job is, but that that would be interesting to uh, see how that's working out. Uh, so then, also the uh, uh, the the Cloud Foundry Summit North America, their their schedule was announced. I think I think I was told that there was a huge response, a great uh, response. So sadly, I will not be speaking there, which is fine. I don't think I sent them a very compelling abstract. But what what <laughs> have have you have you combed over the schedule? What what does it look like that they'll be talking about this year? Yeah, a couple highlights, of course, including they did accept my talk, which I guess is a blessing and a curse. On one hand, it means I have I get to talk. On the other hand, it means I have to prepare a talk. So that's uh that'll be fun. But you know, the keynotes uh, got announced. There's some folks from Google, like Kelsey Hightower and, and Gabe from Microsoft, and a couple other customers like Expedia. But uh, the thing of note I found interesting is Pivotal did sponsor a .NET track, so we've got mm. all sorts of talks from customers and Microsoft themselves, and uh, um, some other vendors kind of covering just .NET in Cloud Foundry. You know, what does it mean to do Cloud Native .NET? And so excited to see that coming more to to PCF, the Cloud Foundry, just kind of opening us up to more developers. They maybe traditionally have paid attention to this. Now, now is your talk going to be on uh, .NET? I, kn I know you're a big .NET fan. I know. That's why I went against uh, Type. So it's a, a Java and Azure talk. Whoa. With, uh, the guy who leads Java on Azure at yeah. Microsoft. So Now, I don't want to expose Richard too much, but, but Paul, some people, when they put together a talk, they just yes. sort of write an abstract, <laughs> and then they, do, they, they work on the talk later. What, what is your method for doing a talk? Do you completely rehearse the talk and then do an abstract and with the confidence that you could give it, do you submit it to people? What's what's the order of operations? Uh, I usually just throw a bunch of words down on, on a, in like notepad.exe or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever you have at hand. <laughs> and, uh, and copy and paste that somewhere. Maybe ask someone to have a quick look over it and make sure I'm not crazy. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of, I'll, tr I'll try and build like, three or four of those that seem somewhat interesting to me. And then I'll spread them around. And if someone bites, then I'm like, uh Oh, I guess I better write this. And yeah. I get busy writing it. And you go through that high, low thing of like, I know what I'm doing. Oh, this is all terrible. I'm going to rewrite it, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you come up with something that's possible as a, a talk that you don't get booed at. Yeah. I, I like, I like the, we, we should call that the, uh, the, the notepad.exe method. I think I think that's that's always a good start because you know it was just uh, I think I think just last week there was uh, if if you uh, remember uh, Ashley McNarma who worked here for about three days as I recall she was uh, she was tweeting that someone was asking about you know putting together CFPs and worrying about it and I think I think that really is the secret is like there's really no uh, there's no secrets just like you just throw stuff together and uh, and and do something I replied to hers on that because something Bridget taught me is that you actually just 
start the year by writing three or four abstracts of talks you want to do. And those are the ones you just throw at every conference. And ideally, you actually have some thoughts behind them. But just instead of just freezing like a deer in the headlights when you see a CFP, you can just pick one of the talks you think are fun that you came up with already. So that doesn't mean you've actually done the talk yet, but at least you've got a, a you know at least a skeleton in place. I got I got that same advice from uh, like John Willis a while ago, or maybe it was this guy Chris Dancy, the most internet connected man on the face of the planet according to the Swedes and Esquire magazine. Uh, but th- that, is, that is good to sort of just like uh, set yourself up for it. It's also good to make sure at least one of those can kind of be adapted for different audiences. Mm. So, you know, it might be, say you're doing a talk about Kubernetes, if you do it in a way that you could turn it into like, focus on like PHP developers or DevOps or, you know, Cloud Foundry, but have the same basic core of talk and just kind of change some of the targeting, then you can kind of easily tweak that talk a little bit and give it to a bunch of different places that uh, are quite buried in like who would attend and Mm. what they would be interested in. Yeah. You know, maybe that's, that's a good tip for me is I should, uh, I should wrap my, uh, my, my abstract in sheep's clothing when it, when it's going into, in a situation, make Mm. it, make it a little more targeted. Cause it was another good piece of advice there about, uh, I mean, you know, like all good pieces of advice, once you type it out, it seems uh, obvious, but it was like, figure, <laughs> out, figure out the themes of the conference and write it to that, which, uh, which, is, which is pretty there good. You go. Well, just a couple more things, and then we'll get on to uh, speaking of tailoring your message to audiences, to, to Kubernetes. But that said, CFP talk's always good because I think uh, I and everyone else, like, uh, you know, would encourage people to go speak at conferences. Like, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of them to go talk to, and chances are you have something interesting to say if, if you just work on it. Because in this space, everything's always uh, going crazy and, and changing and evolving, and uh, as we'll get to once we're done with the news. But there's always something new to talk about if you have some expertise in it. Because just like in doing a CFP, we're, we're all just trying to figure it out. So uh, there's that. So, so there's your little CFP interlude. So uh, speaking of new things, there's a new version of Spring Cloud Dataflow out version 1.3. What's what's in this release, Richard? Yeah, I pointed this one out just because it was a, a giant release and it was open source as well as the, the PCF version is going to be coming out uh, any day now. So people who use PCF, so just keep an, keep an eye out for that. But those the big changes were, and again, for people who don't remember, Spring Cloud Dataflow is the way you build kind of data pipelines made up of Spring Boot apps. So, you know, take in some data from Amazon S3, maybe filter it, maybe do some comparison with other data, then drop it into a database. So build that up as a set of apps and then connect them all. And so a lot of good changes here. One of the big ones is you can do continuous delivery of some of the components. So you could decide to say, hey, let's update this version of this one piece of the pipeline without redeploying the whole pipeline. Let's just update this one thing. So that's really cool that you could keep updating individual pieces without interrupting the flow. Uh, some UI changes, usability changes. They added some more of these connector apps. So if you want to be able to talk to other endpoints like TensorFlow or MQTT, which is an IoT-friendly protocol or things like that. So just some really cool stuff. Spring Cloud Function is support now for, for functions and some of these activities. So it was a it was a nice release. And then keep your eye out for the PCF version where PCF actually manages data flow for you. Uh, here in the coming days. Workflow and data management, otherwise known as anywhere from 60 to 90% of all enterprise software. 
<laughs> right. That's <laughs> Just, right. <laughs> I'm sure there's some things that fall out of the domain, but uh, as when this comes up, as as I'm always fond of saying, the uh, getting some input of a decision to be made, having a bunch of people figure out what to do, and then outputting some some decision that causes money to be lost or made, or customers retained, or fulfilling some promise right. you made to them, you know, sounds like business. So that's uh, that's 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 <laughs> why <is> business. <laughs> that's that's why it's always interesting to see uh, how that's used and, and updates. So just one other thing, uh, it's more of a go check it out. So in the continuing, uh, you know, ironically with with three uh, three white guys talking about it, but in, in the continuing thing to get more diversity into our, our tech world, there's there's a new book out called uh, Brotopia fantastic title there. And there's an excerpt from it. I think it's over in Bloomberg, uh, kind of going over uh, a history of uh, early hiring of, of women in executive positions at uh, Google and, and I don't think at Facebook, but at Google. But it's a good it's a good sort of historic look about the uh, how, how gender gets involved in things for good and bad. And uh, it reminded me of another book. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the, uh, the show notes, which will be at pivotal.io slash podcast. Um, but it reminded me of another book, if you like academic writing. I've probably mentioned it here before called uh, Programmed Inequality, which is a similar historic study going all the back to all the way back to World War II, I think, about the uh, the role of women in computing and how I think maybe starting in the late 60s, they were uh, sort of weeded out and how that, uh, you know, it's not like we think of Britain as a source of awesome computers. Uh no offense or anything, but it makes a pretty good case of how in the government that was obviously harmful and uh, hurt industry to some extent. So those are two good uh, studies to have in your back pocket there. So uh, I, I think, I think how, how long ago did you start working here, Paul? It was uh, the end of last year sometime? Just a few months. Yeah, it was like uh, early November, I think I uh, joined on. Mm, that's right. So so, but before that, I mean, but give, give us a background of, of what, uh, what, what you've been working on. Well, going way back, I come from a sysadmin background, uh, got my, got started doing like ISP stuff and then, you know, late nineties, like a lot of folks kind of it now age group, uh, ended up doing this whole DevOps thing, uh, because I had a lot of service that needed to be configured very fast and proper, a good way to do that. And so I did the whole DevOps thing for a couple of years, uh, accidentally got into cloud was doing OpenStack, Amazon, that sort of stuff. And then more recently got into uh, Kubernetes stuff. Uh, and that's kind of how I ended up where we're at. Uh, but uh, interestingly, from differing from a lot of the, uh, my peers, I guess, uh, I don't come from a development background. Uh, so it's kind of weird to say I'm a developer advocate that's not a developer. But that's uh, kind of where we're at. You know, sysadmins are people too. They need some hope. Some advocacy, not not just this developer horde running roughshod over them and insulting their shell scripts. Exactly. <laughs> well, well. So give a give us a, a you know just a very uh, in in a helpful way a rudimentary overview of like what Kubernetes is. Now you know I've I've read several things. You got you got your pods and uh, your containers. And then you got uh, some other stuff. But as listeners to my other podcasts will know, you know, I'm always, I'm always, uh, uh, I always enjoy a good refresher on on what's actually in there. So just sort of, like, first of all, like, what what problem is it solving? And then and then when you wind your way through that, like, how does it solve that for you? Yeah. So I guess uh, the problem it's solving is uh, somewhere between a PaaS and an IaaS. Um, so you know, you got a, a PaaS, you're like hey, here's some source code, run it for me, I don't really care how. And an IaaS, you're like, well, can I have a, a VM 
and can I have some storage and can I have some networking too, please? And now I, I'll sort of wire it all together. Whereas uh, Kubernetes, you kind of, hey, here's a, here's a container that I've already built from my source code and I want you to run it for me. So it's kind of in that in that middle section between the two. Not quite a PaaS, not quite an IaaS. And and why do you think? Uh, like, what would be the motivation for operating in that between the two area? Like, when do you when do you want that much control over something? Right. So, you know, I think when you're if you're just writing a, a fairly simple, you know, front end app that's you know following all the all the twelve factors and is cloud native. And you don't really need that control. You can just say, run it for me. Uh, but when you've got something more complicated, you know, it's not fully cloud native. Maybe it's a, an older style uh, monolithic app, or maybe it's a database like Cassandra where it's somewhat cloud native, but it, you know, requires you to have storage somewhere. Uh, Kubernetes kind of gives you that uh, middle ground where you've sort of got, you know, in, in the old way of doing things, You'd have to write config management code. You'd have to write uh, cloud formation. You'd have to write scripts to have Jenkins deploy all the, deploy all those for you in the right order. Whereas with Kubernetes, you have you know you have your image and you have a manifest, which is a fairly small YAML file, which just says, "Hey Kubernetes, here's my image, and this is how I want you to run it." So it, it saves a lot of typing uh, and in theory, reduces the chance of uh, human error creeping in, I think. Would you say that the kind of like helpfulness of that? Because, I mean, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's still the basic sense of uh, I have these units of compute, like an image or a container or whatever, and I want them to group, I want to group them together somehow, and I would like them to be able to mm -hmm. talk to each other. Um, and then they also mm -hmm. need like this storage, Right, like I mean, those are kind of the primitives of any distributed computing application. I don't know, you layer in other stuff for more severe security yeah. and load balancing and all your wingdings and whatnot. But um, so, so does like how how does Kubernetes achieve making that better than using an IaaS? Like, uh, and then to to lead the witness a little bit, like, is it because you have less choice, or it's better at automation, or or like what? Like what's what's its deal, as it were, about how it achieves betterness? It's designed with a focus on running applications, whereas cloud is, is designed with a focus on running, you know, virtual machines or uh, uh, operating systems. And so the prim are much more specific to running those applications uh, and wiring those applications together, and that. Kind of, I guess that's the to me that's the, the the big difference. When you look at running the environment side, going through some of your blog posts and things that you've written in the past about this, you know, not to be too self-serving, but as we look at what we're trying to do with Pivotal Container Service, what, I mean, in general, what do you think are some of the operational things though with teams who do set up these environments themselves? What kind of things might they not be aware of, or what are some sort of things that are really exciting after they've stood up? but then there are operational activities or things like that. What's the sort of life cycle things that folks might not be aware of when they do these things themselves? Kubernetes is in itself a fairly complex distributed system. Um, and because of the, the resources it has, it requires, uh, you know, you need to have some sort of storage somewhere. You need to have some sort of networking somewhere. So there's a lot of things that you need before you can even install Kubernetes. And there's a lot of choices you need to make about how you're going to install Kubernetes. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of say that if you uh, if you 
attempted to build failed in the past. Now you can attempt to build and install Kubernetes and fail. Uh, it's kind of you know the same thing. There's some differences in complexity, um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And unless your business's core competency is running Kubernetes, just getting to running Kubernetes is not really adding any value to you, right? Because you've probably spent six months or more and however much engineering time to try and build this uh, platform, which you could have just asked someone to give you. Right. I mean, you're yourself, I think you, uh, you've written about even deploying applications to these environments. Thank you. You have an example of your first Helm chart I was reading through right. last night. Uh, so how does a developer push code? Do you see them typically doing CI sort of processes and not actually using a kubectl sort of command to apply a configuration and deploying it using Helm charts? What do you think or what are you observing as people figure out ways to deploy containers as, as apps? Yeah, so you know, ideally, no one apart from the Kubernetes administrators would be running kube control or kube cuddle commands. Uh, it would be done by some sort of CI system, some sort of you know robot that's being taught how to deploy that application. Uh, and I think probably more common, it's gonna it's gonna be running Helm or something like Helm um, to do so because Kubernetes manifests themselves are quite static. Uh, they're just a, a, a YAML representation of a data structure. And so you can't really do any sort of intelligence there. And, you know, if in staging environment, you have one database, production environment, you have another database. If you just have straight YAML, there's no way to really say, okay, use that database first, use this database. And so Helm sort of brings that in and gives you that templating ability to say, you know, in my staging environment, here are some of the settings I need to be set versus my production environment, here are some of the settings I need, that need to be set. Um, so I, I definitely think that there's, there's a progression where you're gonna just write Kubernetes manifests locally on your laptop and make sure it work, works with Minikube. Then you're gonna be like, okay, I need to make sure this is actually gonna deploy to various environments. So you might write, uh, you might then convert that uh, Kubernetes manifest into Helm charts. And then hopefully you see I Jenkins or whatever tool people are using these days uh, you'll have to do the actual, you know, Helm install, Helm update commands to actually install and upgrade your applications onto Kubernetes. So, so then, uh, like, I mean, uh, to to use uh, Richard's word, obviously we're biased and self-serving, but like when, when you sort of look at it, evaluating, if, if you were giving people advice about evaluating, like which Kubernetes thing to use, right? Like, it seems like, well, first of all, you would be like, you should be an ops person, right? Like if you're a developer worrying about this, then you should ask for more budget to not worry about this if, if you have to, yeah. or, or like, you know, your hobby is fascinating could also be your response. Um, but so if you're talking with sort of like the right people, like how, what, what would be the way you would like consult with them to, to evaluate which one they should use? Like what are the things that they need and the attributes that they should be looking for? And I don't know if you're supposed to say distro in the Kubernetes world nowadays, but like how would, how would, how would they come up with a feature matrix to make a decision, to make a joke out of the question? You know, the main thing is to make sure that the Kubernetes you get looks and acts like a Kubernetes which seems kind of obvious, but you know, one of the things that we're being promised with Kubernetes is if you write your Kubernetes manifests, you should be able to run your application anywhere that supports Kubernetes. Uh, and so far, like that's proving to be true across the public clouds. You know, they, each, each of the major public clouds has a Kubernetes distro 
and they all look and smell like Kubernetes. And with very, very minimal, if no differences, you can deploy your app to any of them and it just works. And so making sure that you have that same portability as you bring you know, Kubernetes into your own data center, I think is the uh, probably the, the key thing. Um, and then also just making sure that they're keeping up with the, the fairly you know recent versions of Kubernetes, given how quickly Kubernetes is moving and how quickly uh, features are coming in that are really table stakes the moment they get into Kubernetes. Uh, it's important to know that you know when Kubernetes uh, 1.9 is out, that you'll have uh, as quickly as possible Kubernetes 1.9 available to you. I think you know the GKE service; uh, they're quite quick at uh, making sure that the latest version of Kubernetes is available to you. And I think it's wise to make sure that uh, you don't lag too behind uh, what GKE and what the communities uh, community in general uh, is is offering. Can I ask you, without you know, no naming names, but what what are the things you mentioned versioning? But what are other things that braid compatibility that you see in the Kubernetes world? As you say, there's lots of distributions. There's a lot of people doing things with it. So what are those things? That if I'm a an end user, I'd say, look, this is a layer of the platform where vendors try to differentiate themselves, and my app might not move from here to here. Where do you see those layers where vendors are purposely differentiating by doing things that aren't super portable? No, I haven't looked too deeply at what uh, all of the vendors are doing, uh, so I don't have a great answer for that. But I do know that you could make decisions around storage and networking that could make Kubernetes behave differently. Or, you know, if you if if your vendor was wiring on a bunch of uh, you know special source on top of and around Kubernetes, then that special source probably isn't going to be available in GKE or AKS or whichever other Kubernetes uh, location you want to go to. Um, so while I, I don't know specifically what uh, a distro might be breaking, uh, I could see it happening quite easily. So, so like the, the high level things for evaluating are basically like, and, and I, I noticed this in uh, following the spaces, I forget the exact wording, but uh, it's always like, oh, we, we have the, we, we pull the most updated thing and are compatible with it, right? So the, the core of your Kubernetes thing, basically, that seems to be the norm now is that there's no uh, specialization of it. Uh, if you will, and instead, I guess you specialize on the uh, at the bread layer, not at the uh, the meat layer. The pastrami sandwich, right. all the same inside. Yeah. And then, and then to that end, uh, I don't know. You you tell me, but there's a certain amount of months that you want to have your frequent updates. I guess, like, do you think that's like a three or six month interval, or like how frequently should you see that that your uh, your distro is providing an update? Yeah. So Kubernetes itself does a new minor release every three months. And then a bunch of patch releases in the middle. Uh, so I think, you know, if you were much more than a full release behind, I think uh, that would be somewhat concerning. Um, and you know, I think it's it's okay for your installation to be behind because you know you have to decide when you're going to upgrade your platform. But to make sure that wherever you're getting your Kubernetes from uh, has the ability to deploy the newer versions and upgrade to the newer versions, um, I think. Uh, one of the big differentiators back in the OpenStack days was being able to upgrade your uh, OpenStack. Um, very few distributions actually could do in-place upgrades of, of your OpenStack, uh, which is kind of a, a dirty little secret no one talked about. So making sure that we don't fall into that same pit in Kubernetes is pretty important. So 
being able to upgrade to the new version at any time, I think is the important thing. That way you can decide uh, when and how you can actually do that upgrade. And I think a lot of people are going to be running more than one Kubernetes, uh, especially in the in the near term where um, Kubernetes doesn't have any, any sort of uh, like per user uh, authentication without uh, integrating something like LDAP or uh, or whatever. Uh, and that's you know while most people are still trying to, to figure out how to run Kubernetes, you know there's still a ways off figuring out if you know the systems they have. And so a lot of folks seem to be saying, okay, well, instead of running one big Kubernetes um, that everyone has access to because we have great, you know, user separation, maybe we'll run five Kubernetes and give each department their own Kubernetes or have each environment on their own Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost multi-tenancy and- through clustering versus uh, sharing the same space. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so ha- having that, it also becomes very important to be able to uh, deploy and operate multiple Kubernetes quite easily. Um, you know, if, if installing one Kubernetes takes a week, then that's going to be a big barrier to entry to be able to run five Kubernetes, right? Yeah, it's a great point. It's nice to have that choice of when you upgrade. So you might not upgrade the moment that Pivotal or Google or whoever update bits, but it's nice to have the choice of you to, you control when it rolls out. You're not beholden to the vendor to hopefully catch up after six or eight months. So that's, that's a great point. So, so then scurrying behind, uh, uh, <clears throat> maybe not in a mischievous way, but but a fair amount of what you're saying is uh, it, it connects to another interesting trend that I know you and I have sort of like uh, talked about a little bit. But as you're saying, uh, if you're a developer, you probably shouldn't be running this. It's like the operations people who run this. So uh, like, how do you think having something like a Kubernetes in place like affects the notion, uh, like a literal notion of like DevOps, like, does it mean that there's less of that? Like maybe you put a space instead of those two words, instead of camel casing it, or like, how does it sort of, I don't know, do a lot of what DevOps people would be doing manually on their own? It all goes back to, and I don't want to get into too much, like what the hell even is DevOps? Um, Like to me, DevOps is kind of a practice. So if you're following a certain set of, you know, uh, practices, then you're doing DevOps. And that could mean that you're developing the code and deploying it and doing whatever, or it could mean that you're developing the, the code and another team is developing the automation and it all comes together. Um, and you could fairly call both of those things DevOps. Um, so what I think uh, we're going to see is you're going to have like a, a cluster ops team, which is kind of a group of you know, admins and software developers that are uh, building, running, and maintaining your uh, platform, of which Kubernetes is probably a part of. Uh, and then you're going to have your application teams, uh, which are, again, a combination of uh, you know your more traditional operations and developers that are going to be focused on using that platform to run their applications. Paul, I wanted to get your take. I mean, we talk about Kubernetes here and containers and in some circles, it seems like there's a, a conflict between the people who like containers and the people who like serverless or functions, whatever we want to label it at at the moment. Do you see those things in conflict? Do you see those things as an evolution? Do you see this as better together? How do you kind of munge the worlds of people who say, look, I don't want to care about 
stateful sets and load balancers and figuring out a manifest and all this stuff. I just wanted some code to run somewhere, and that's why I like Lambda. That's why I like Azure Functions. So, I mean, what do you what do you think of those worlds? How do you see those two ever reconciling, or do they have to? Um, so I, I think the the reason they like serverless, well, one of the reasons they like serverless is, as you said, they don't really have to do anything special to have their code run. And I think that's how where we, we as kind of the people that are building the platforms need to make sure that we give our developers an experience like that, whether they're running on containers, whether they're running on VMs, or whether it's a magic thing up in the sky, they should have that same basic experience of I write code, I want code to run, and not have to worry about the, the underlying uh, business of actually making it run. And so I think uh, serverless is more an evolution of the user experience to me than it is, uh, a, you know, a breakthrough in, uh, you know, technology or anything. I think Kelsey Hightower pointed out uh, not long ago in a blog post that, uh, you know, we were doing serverless a long time ago and we called it, uh, you know, common gateway interface. And that's how we started running, you know, scripts and PHP and stuff in the, you know, late nineties. And that was telling Apache, hey, run this function for me. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I wonder if the, but do you think the patterns are different though? Because as you said, I can cram all sorts of things in a container and I get certain efficiencies and benefits versus most part function platforms teach folks to do or force people to do a fairly asynchronous sort of event-driven architecture. There may be possibilities in the future for sharing functions between different companies as you have marketplaces like Amazon's doing. And so do, do you think there's a bigger paradigm shift though versus just the UX experience being a little different? There probably is. Um, I think we're still away from realizing that though. Um, That's fair. And, and, I, and I think in the, in the meantime, uh, being able to run existing workloads and new workloads that don't quite fit the serverless model. Um, having something like Kubernetes or, uh, or a PaaS underneath you is uh, really useful. Uh, and I think it is good though to have things like serverless at your fingertips so that when you do hit something that's perfect for just having a function that can react to an event and uh, you know output some sort of blob of information or pass on that to uh, another thing to process, I think, uh, you know, is super important. And so being able to tie the two together uh, and uh, and run the two side by side uh, is definitely going to be uh, very critical in whatever whatever platform you uh, you get to use. Well, that's good. I think. Uh, I mean, I mean, is there anything else you want to throw out before before we wrap up that you think would be uh, good for people to know about the Kubernetes space? No, nope, not that I can think of. I, I mean, I mean, clearly, <laughs> clearly, ba- clearly, based on what you said, everyone should go out and try to install it right now. That that seems to be the uh, the primary takeaway, as as I recall. I, mean, I had a little bit of a laggy connection, but that's what I wrote down in my notes. Right. So, if you want to experience installing Kubernetes, uh, Google for Kubernetes the hard way. Uh, it was Kelsey Hightower has got a Git repo uh, that tells you in painful detail uh, all of the commands you need to run to. Uh, go from zero to Kubernetes, uh, and it's quite an eye-opening experience and uh, shows you how uh, how important it is to have all of that automated in a repeatable and reliable way. Yeah, I, I think I think that's something that that we uh, we sort of all realized a few years back is like if you want if you want a cloud, 
then you have to install a cloud. Like it's pretty difficult. It's not yeah. like uh, it's it's. There's a reason it's a cloud instead of just a VM, <laughs> and and that the reason it, <laughs> it contains multiple multitudes of uh, awesome configuration tasks or toil, as as some other people would call it, which which is fine. It has yes. it has nice results. Well, uh, to that end, why don't you know? I I know you're over there on Twitter. You're you're one of these people who has an ever delightful evolving real name that you use there. So that's fun. But where 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 you in Twitter and elsewhere that people could uh, look you up and in a very non creepy way follow you around the internet? Yeah, you can find me at Pichukovsky on Twitter uh, because when I signed up for Twitter, I didn't quite realize that it was really s- silly to have a unspellable username. Uh, so if you can figure out how to spell the first half of my last name, you can uh, find me on Twitter. Mm. We should we should just see if uh, maybe Google has worked out well enough that you could just search for like Paul Kubernetes and you know because Kubernetes easy word to spell oh. equally uh, no problem. Yeah, that's right. That word. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks for being on. That that was uh, that was good stuff. And as always, this has been pivotal conversations. If you want to get the most recent episodes or peruse our back catalog, I was just looking at a, speaking of platforms, an episode we had with uh, the platform team at Allstate, uh, just going over how they built out their platform. And we talked a little bit about it here, but the evolving roles of the platform operators versus the application teams that they discovered in doing that. But there's other episodes, a lot of Richard and I talking in our uh, wonderful, comforting, uh, you know, back and forth voices. But you can check those all out over at soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations, just one word. And about every Thursday, I post the uh, full show notes over at pivotal.io slash podcast, where you can find links to those things that we mentioned. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.